everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Camille Foster, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thank you for having me, Robert. I appreciate you, man. Glad to have you on. Uh, we met in Malibu at mm -hmm. the uh atlas society event where mr michael saylor was awarded the lifetime achievement award and you were on a panel there uh i just thought you were a very compelling speaker so i had to come introduce myself and ask you to come on the show and here we are i appreciate that man thank you and uh, i'm delighted to join you uh, this was the second year in a row um i think that i've been at the the atlas gala and it's it's a very interesting space i'm not an objectivist. I'm a decidedly libertarian, um, but I'm someone who's kind of read and benefited from like Ayn Rand's perspective on a number of topics. And in, in general, I think her insistence that it is important to interrogate your your philosophical moorings. Mm. What is it you believe? Um, the the story, or not story, but the essay of Rand's that always comes to mind when I think about her um, is, I believe it's the beginning it's the first, um, the first essay in her book um, about philosophy, and it's about the spaceman. And mm -hmm. you land on this planet, and none of the devices inside of your spaceship work anymore. Mm -hmm. And you have to make a decision, like, what am I going to do? 
how am I going to figure this out? Am I going to try to go out into the world and, and find my own way? Or am I going to wait for someone to come and tell me what to do or mm -hmm. rescue me? And, and in this particular story, just to spoil it for everyone, but you can still go read it. Um, their uh, account is that someone does come and they quote unquote rescue him. And he is of course never heard from again because he has this mongrel philosophy that he inherits and it leads to his destruction. Um, and I think that that is a, a really like vital charge for people to keep in mind. Um, and I, I, something I've always appreciated about Rand in particular and uh, the best objectivist in general. Yeah, that is, I've never, I have not read much Rand. Uh, I'm ashamed to admit it and I plan on reading more. It's okay. Uh, life is, life is long. It's many books to read. <laughs> I am much, I'm on, I'm a pretty much a libertarian as well. I, you could also maybe take it a step further and call me uh, an anarcho capitalist. I, I'm Similarly really, guilty. Yeah. Very anti-state to the bone. I've, called myself a freedom maximalist online just to try to make it very clear because <laughs> when you say libertarian people think it's a political party and i'm like no i'm very anti-politics yeah. um and i've only read her uh essay the virtue of selfishness mm -hmm. but man she's a very compelling writer she's got a lot of great points um but i don't yeah i need to need to learn more about her and her thinking to really form a, a good opinion yeah um, before we get too far into this, I wanted to just introduce you to my audience. So you are the co-host of the Fifth Column podcast, and you're also a partner and co-founder at Freethink. Yeah. Um, maybe we could just start there. So first of all, I was curious, where did what does the name of the podcast signify, the Fifth Column? And then what is the podcast about? Well, the fifth column is a, a media criticism podcast. It is co-hosted by myself, a guy named Michael Moynihan, and another guy named Matt Welch. And the three of us have been you know, friends for a long time. We all come out of the same uh, quasi-libertarian kind of circle, um, but we're also somewhat, uh, and I suppose this is least applicable to me, like media veterans. Um, Moynihan has worked advice and at reason and a bunch of other places he's also worked in book publishing matt has been at reason for a number of years spent some time at the la times um and i've, I've been at news corp and now run freethink which i can talk about in a minute and the podcast is ostensibly about um the the various media narratives that are always a swirl the the business of making news and i think our raison d'etre is trying to help people be more conscientious media consumers, mm. teaching media literacy, so to speak. Uh, but we do it in our own way. Um, and it's often working a bit blue. Uh, some of the episodes are a little zany, crazy, uh, outrageous. Uh, there is frequently drinking and various other imbibing uh, that nice. takes place on the podcasts. And our guests uh, run the gamut. You know, it might be anyone from, you know, a CNN host to a Fox contributor or, you know, the, I think we had the chairman of the FCC on before, um, as well as some presidential candidates. So, you know, it, it's all over the map. It is not a libertarian podcast, though it does over index for libertarians. Um, but it, it very much is a podcast that just tries to be thoughtful, critical, to ask good questions, um, and to model like sensible discussion about important issues, but also not to take everything too seriously. Um, I think my 
my kind of principal attribute in that context is to be relentlessly um, critical of like panic and hysteria. Uh, and we've had a hell of a lot of hysteria in our politics and in our media coverage over the course of the last year. And fifth column, the name itself, I mean, we are, since we're journalists, we work in journalism and we have this podcast about journalism that is oftentimes very critical of the way that the business is done. I think we're kind of fifth columnists in that regard. We're kind of working against um, the the interest perhaps of the broader industry, which oftentimes is working against, I think, the interest of the public it's supposed to be serving ostensibly. Um, and then Freethink is a, is kind of a different, a different thing. Uh, Freethink is a company, a media brand that surveys stories about um, the future, uh, about the world that we want to create, about people who are envisioning new and different ways to take on big challenges. Um, it's uh, an optimistic kind of human progress oriented media brand. And the thinking there is that we tell stories about the most important things that are happening in the world, even if it's something that you know, won't necessarily be a household name for another five to 10 or 15 years. Hopefully these are stories that will matter, that'll be genuinely durable. Um, the thinking being that you know, 90% of the stuff that you'll read in the New York Times today, like will not matter two years from now. Mm -hmm. the, the current active controversies are not of urgent concern. Um, even if most of what you're reading is about politics, war in the stock market, like there's a re very real sense in which the things that will most impact the lives of our children um, are not the things that we spend the most time debating. That is for sure. Um... Well, uh, that's great. You guys, sounds like you're on the podcast working against those who are working against the public with a lot of this narrative. Uh, I don't know. Is it, is it, are they manufactured narrative? It, the, the, the perception I get on it is that these have become machines that are being used by vested interest to try and manufacture consent or brainwash people mm. like it is especially the past couple of years like it has seemed almost exclusively bullshit flowing through mainstream media and i'm very bullish on the podcast space in general as like a counterforce to that but it sounds like you guys are taking a very direct approach just uh hopefully educating people on how to filter narratives properly yeah i think we're trying to i think we're trying to and, I, and i'll say this you know oftentimes it can seem very conspiratorial, mm -hmm. the way that media narratives emerge, the way that everyone kind of arrives at the same, um, at the same perspectives, they start echoing the same kinds of tropes. Mm -hmm. I think it was earlier this week uh, that uh, was it Marion Webster um, said that gaslighting was like the word, the word of the year. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, up until a couple of years ago, it was a word that almost no one um, ever used. And suddenly it's completely in vogue in the same way that we cannot stop talking about disinformation and misinformation, for example. Mm -hmm. um, there seems to be this kind of elite consensus that is represented in most media narratives. And, you know, it would be, it would actually be, I think, a little bit better and less maddening if it was, you know, some kind of top down conspiracy and someone was mm -hmm. giving orders. Uh, but the reality is, I think that it's a, a kind of emergent phenomenon, like mm -hmm. the markets, mm -hmm. um, and that it has a lot to do with the fact that we've had over the course of the last couple of decades, this radical 
transformation of the way knowledge and information are produced. Um, and that transformation has led to uh, a real erosion of kind of trust and confidence in in institutions um, and in elites broadly. And I think this is a story that's been expertly told um, in a book like Revolt of the Public, um, which I would highly recommend to people. Um, and that's created a lot of weird um, kind of social dislocation, um, everything from kind of Occupy Wall Street all the way down to um, Black Lives Matter, uh, the Tea Party movement, uh, and more recently, like Antifa, like all of these organizations share um, some kind of similar DNA. Um, and in many respects, I think that the press itself, that the elite media like, feels a lot of the pressure um, that comes along with this, this kind of radical reshaping of the way information and knowledge is created, um, going from a world where there are these three kind of dominant media organizations mm -hmm that help to dictate what the narrative is in the country to one where virtually anyone can get online, can shout something, and there's a decent percentage chance in some instances that this will catch on. Um, that you know, when the major media organization gets something wrong um, or overlooks something really important, that people will find out very quickly. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one of the, the best pieces of evidence to support this narrative is the fact that just public trust in media broadly has been plummeting um, since the 1970s. Um, but in particular, um, it's taken a real, real nosedive over the course of recent years. And the only, <laughs> the only sense in which it kind of looks good for them is that there is this massive delta between people on the political left and the political right. And people on the political left tend to have a tremendous amount of faith um, in the mainstream media, while people who are independents or conservatives tend to be a lot more critical um, and by critical, I mean, like we're talking teens for their level of confidence right. um, in the media's ability to be fair. And that's that's really distressing. It's distressing when one segment of the population thinks those people are telling the truth 60, 70 percent of the time. And the others suspect that there's like 12 percent delta. It's going to create some pretty severe, um, some pretty severe concern. Um, and it's likely to have some real repercussions for the media industry more broadly. Right. Yeah. So what I hear you on that. There, what's that old quote? You should never ascribe to malice, which you can ascribe to stupidity or something like that. But <laughs> yeah, and that works is, too. Yes. What is, in your estimation, driving the emergent phenomenon? Because, I mean, what the attacks on language at least seem to be pretty. Uh, intentional, you know, and then, and I would also like to understand how much of wokeism, DEI, critical race theory, all of this stuff that is being, I guess, pushed on institutions, perhaps, how much of that is state funded? Do you have any idea? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, let me take it this way. Like I'm someone who is vehemently critical of a lot of the cultural trends around identity and quote unquote diversity mm -hmm. um, and certainly the the equity initiatives that we're seeing in a lot of different corporate circles. Um, I, I have very particular ideas about race and identity um, and about the importance of individualism um, and the dignity of the individual. I believe pretty fervently that a core 
tenet of a free society has to be respect for individuals that mm -hmm. our our policies and our culture like needs to both need to have at their core a uh, respect for for the individual baked in um so that's my disposition at the same time i'm grown increasingly concerned about the degree to which um, we kind of obsess over some of the weird cultural fixations around like wokeness and DEI. Um, I think a couple of years ago, um, during the kind of peak of 2020, when there was so much social upheaval and so much change taking place kind of instantaneously, um, I can appreciate why people were had some kind of apocalyptic almost levels of concern about quote unquote wokeness. Um, but as times as time has gone on um, and we've seen genuine kind of uh, uh, pushback against a lot of these trends in the broader populace, even if in you know elite institutions, like at the universities in the C-suite of various media companies, for example, things might be a little different. There's actually a fair amount of resistance to this stuff in the public at large. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, I think a lot of these institutions have suffered a loss of credibility. Um, a lot of these institutions have had to um, eventually start to push back. Um, some corporate executives have even um, Netflix, Basecamp, um, uh, um, forgetting the, um, Coinbase. Like there have been a number of prominent examples of companies who've said, you know what, we're not going to do all of that other weird diversity stuff here. Like what matters is merit and we respect our, our employees and we don't expect you to bring your politics to work and you shouldn't expect the company itself to take political positions. Mm -hmm. um, that's an important shift. The fact that the culture hasn't been completely hijacked is really important. And I, I think there's always a risk of allowing ourselves to be so consumed with the things that we are worried about, that we're afraid of, that we dislike that we kind of forget what our actual principles and values are. Um, so I try to keep that, that stuff front and center, you know, how much of it is funded by the state. Well, it's certainly the case that to the extent you are, you have, you know, publicly funded K through 12 education um, and mm -hmm. this stuff becomes a, a vital component of how education is done then that's a pretty big deal to the extent you even have publicly funded universities and these universities have baked in to their, their kind of mandates and their policies, um, these kind of DEI um, uh, priorities and anti-racist priorities, then that becomes uh, a concern. And I think it's worth drawing attention to that. But the question becomes like, what do you do um, about that? What do you do about the fact that there is a real um, kind of push towards some of these ideas in the culture. Um, do you try to, you know, pass laws to prevent people from um, talking about these things in public settings? Do you try to pass laws to prevent teachers from talking about this kind of stuff in classrooms? Um, or is there perhaps some other way to confront what is a, a really concerted effort to try and practice like kind of indoctrination in classrooms mm -hmm. um, or people who are in many instances being derelict in their duty to actually educate students and do basic stuff like teach them math and reading 
<laughs> um, and at the expense of that are focusing on outright political propagandizing in, inside of schools. Um, I think it's, it's, it's important to, to think about it in that way um, because it leads to very different kinds of decision-making. Like in one instance, you know, you're just kind of having this, this scrum for the ball um, who gets to dictate what is taught in classrooms. And in another instance, you might be drawing attention to the fact that in many instances, these schools weren't working very well already, that the critical goal of making certain that students are actually learning the fundamental things they need to become critical thinkers in a free society, um, that, that they need to be able to exercise reason um, is something that's just been genuinely neglected. Mm -hmm. That becomes all important, in which case the priority isn't, you know, trying to ban things. It's actually delivering meaningful educational freedom and competition to parents, for example, and families. Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases, it might mean moving away from a system of higher education that depends um, on public funding. Um, that might actually be a more salient um, and thoughtful approach. And they may not be compatible with one another. Man, it's definitely uh, a pernicious problem. I, I mean, the deeper libertarian in me is just like, just like everything that the government becomes involved in, it gets screwed up. You know, mm -hmm. so like, I, I think removing this. Well, I mean, what can we do? Like, as individually, don't put your kids in public school, right? Don't put them in state-based education. Then you avoid some of that. But um so long as people are being taxed and public schools are being funded and people are going to public schools you're going to have this in indoctrination type situation and um i don't it's very very complicated to untangle um the first i appreciate your feedback on that the pr first question i was sorry to hit you with two questions at once but the first one i asked you what do you think is driving the emergent is this a mass psychosis? That's what I typically refer to it as. I'm not sure. Mm. What is this emergent political shitstorm over the past two years? Like, do you think there is a fundamental driver or is this just a multivariate kind of situation? Um, I mean, I think you're talking, you're asking in terms of the kind of identity politics stuff in particular. Yeah. Or just in, in general. Mean, the, it was obviously the medical stuff was the real hot divisive topic for mm -hmm. quite a long time. And then it became the identity politics. Um, but it was sudden, you know, I don't, I, it didn't seem like there was much of that. Obviously there was no medical stuff prior to March, 2020, but even the identity politics stuff seemed, at least from my perspective, maybe I'm just out of the loop on this. It just seemed to be mm -hmm. kind of simmering. And then yeah, all I'd of a sudden, say, once it went yeah. off, once COVID went off, everything went off. Yeah, I'd say that the last couple of years, the pandemic itself um, has been uh, an, an opportunity for a lot of pronounced social upheaval to take place in a very short period of time. I mean, we were all under enormous stress. Um, the, the fractures were already beginning to show uh, by the time we got to May of 2020. Um, we were already starting to see these like massive demonstrations in the street in response to lockdown orders, in response to masking mandates. Um, and that was before we even got to the vaccine mandates. We were already starting to see that. Um, and then by the time we got to the summer, 
um, and the death of George Floyd, like things really started to take off. Mm. And I think in, in many respects, a lot of those ideas were already there. They were in the ether um, and it, it just kind of required uh, a spark to get it right. going. Um, but if you look around the world, the reality is that we've seen profound social upheaval pretty much everywhere and all at once and not always for the same reasons or even in the same directions mm -hmm. like in some cases we're seeing you know these right wing so to speak revolutions these nationalist revolutions that seem to be happening in other cases we're seeing iran and china where there are these um sort of ground swells of popular support against these um entrenched um totalitarian regimes and that is a, an object, objectively good thing from the perspective of people like you and I. Um, and I think it's important to, to acknowledge that all of that stuff is kind of coming out of the same milieu. Like the, what's being toppled in many instances are kind of dominant ethics and dominant institutions um, and dominant personalities. And in many instances, I think that it probably has more to do with that than any kind of underlying political project um yeah. so to speak like everything is is vulnerable because everything is is being is being questioned and challenged um and people are sort of more empowered than ever before with respect to their ability to both speak out and to be heard um and to select for themselves the kind of narratives that they're going to that they're going to be subscribing to um you know the particular resonance of like race and identity issues in in the american context i think is a is a kind of separate issue altogether like we kind of have a, a unique history in this country we have a a, a unique set of you know, political and philosophical influences someone like martin luther king has always loomed large um you know during my lifetime mm -hmm. in the in the american political scene um and we just have an acute sensitivity around those issues um, and so in some respects, it's not surprising that there's been this kind of reordering of priorities specifically in line with that. Um, but, you know, amongst, I think, elites in particular at the university level, a lot of this, these trends had already been well-established. Uh, if you go back and read, um, I believe it's uh, Peter Thiel and David Sachs' book, The Diversity Myth, which might've been published in like 1994, um, or um, the the kindly inquisitors, um, which was maybe published the year after that. Like both of those books, um, if you read them now, and I I read them both in the years. Well, I read diversity myth a little earlier. I read um, kindly inquisitors during 2020, and it's eerie, like just how much what was going on at the time those books were written uh, mirrored what we were seeing in the public. Um, uh, during the the kind of summer of love, so to speak, <laughs> when the, the, the fires and the riots were taking place. The Diversity Myth was the first one. The, the second one is The Kindly Inquisitors, um, Kindly. which is a, a book that is more about free speech than it is the the kind of weird cultural trends, but it addresses the, the cultural trends. But the Diversity Myth is very specifically um, about the kind of rise of this new approach to diversity, um, this new hyper-focus on identity politics and the degree to which this has some kind of eerie kind of totalitarian qualities to it. 
and yeah. the fact that it is kind of a direct challenge to a lot of the classical liberal moorings of American society and politics, polit and the American polity broadly. Yes, yes, yeah, it it certainly does. Um, again, the the attacks on language are the one. I mean, this is I'm I guess largely inspired here by Jordan Peterson. That's where I got the mm -hmm. first inklings of this, and uh, I forget the name of the bill now, but where they were trying to have compelled speech in Canada and he just in said, Canada. Mm -hmm. basically not going to do that <laughs> for these reasons uh, it, the aspiring totalitarian impulse always seems to attack language and money like these two critical media that we use to organize ourselves seem to be the first ones on the chopping block when uh, and I, again, I try to say it, it's an impulse, like it's something that lives in all human beings, I think. I don't try to single out individuals, although there are people that are a little more given to that impulse than others. Um, I am trying to, I guess, get a holistic view of what's going on or what's common between these episodes. And um, I guess I'd like to try to rephrase what I said earlier, because I don't think there's political top-down uh, you know, a group of people saying, hey, let's inject wokeism and, you know, confuse and divide people. I think mm -hmm. here's the, the the downstream path that I see. I think it's technology is upstream from economics. Economics is upstream from culture. Culture is upstream from politics. And so my theory about what's going on here, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, is the technological landscape has shifted so rapidly. Uh, I mean, I've experienced this just in my own life. I, I was so resistant to social media when it first came out. It felt mm. like self-promotion or self-aggrandizement. And yeah, it was yeah. just noisy. And I'm like, this yeah. is weird. I don't want to be a part of it. But now I've fully capitulated. I'm like, this is the new media paradigm. It's not going anywhere. It's mm -hmm. like get on board or get left behind kind of thing. And so that has obviously had ramifications on economics um, and an another thing there is the, when we're, and again, this is part of the theory at the technology layer, I think money is one of the most important technologies in the world. We currently have a global implementation of fiat currency. Mm -hmm. So when we print money, it's a regressive tax on the poor and middle class. So it's actually widening the gap between rich and poor. It's making the rich richer and the poor poorer. And so if that tech is upstream from the economics, you know, fiat's the tech, the economic situation is widening wealth gap. The cultural consequences of that would be more divisiveness, right? And then I guess the, you would see that reflected, at least in the US, in the, the widening divide between red and blue. So I guess in a nutshell, widening wealth disparity leads to widening political divide. Mm -hmm. Um to what extent, I mean, I would just love to hear your thoughts on that, I guess, like what, because these episodes have recurred, they have some similarities, but they're all a little bit different, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but there does seem to be this common element of like a, a victimizing class and a victimized class. It usually has to do with, with wealth and it usually has to do with language or labeling of some kind. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think you're, I think you're correct. And I think that's pretty, 
pretty highly, it's highly compatible with what I was describing earlier um, when I, when I touched on um, or mentioned revolt of the public and the fact that there's been this kind of massive shift um, in the way information and knowledge are, are established um, and constructed and disseminated. Um, and I think technology is obviously central to that. Um, the information economy is one that has been um, powered by the advent of the internet um, and this radical transformation um, in the way that we engage with one another. I and mean, the fact that, you know, I don't, I don't have, I don't have cable television. You know, if you told me 30 years ago, 20 years ago that, you know, you'll be a grown up and you'll have, you'll have means, but you won't even have cable. Well, I won't No, but you'll have access to more stuff than you could ever possibly imagine that there won't be any need for, for records and CDs and tapes yeah. anymore. You would have literally access to, to virtually any piece of recorded music in history at your fingertips, at your disposal. And in much the same way, like to the extent there are particular books that you want to read, pieces of information, things you'd like to discuss, even people that you would like to connect with, you don't need to consult anyone in, in private, via VPN, um, you know, via Tor. You can get this stuff pretty much any place in the world, pretty much any time. Um, it is an extraordinarily um, radical departure from the way that things were before, and it's had a, a profoundly disruptive effect on society broadly. And I, I do think that um, the, the kind of financial instability um, and insecurity, the, the kind of instability of the fiat system in particular and the, the central banking system that we have um, has helped to make things far more disconcerting for a lot of people. Um, the central banking system is supposed to give us reliability and stability. Right. Um, and instead, um, they've helped to architect so many of the profound economic crises that we've seen in recent years um, and are now supposed to be steering us out of one um, which was again precipitated by the massive interventions during the pandemic, where they profoundly inflated the money supply. Um, I think one thing that kind of complicates the story, um, especially for for people like us, um, and perhaps per, for you in particular, as someone who's a prominent figure in kind of the crypto community, is that a lot of people were starting to get into crypto um, during this period. A lot of people who, in many instances, didn't quite know what they were doing. Um, and it's, it's still early days and the kind of massive disruptions that have happened there, um, have perhaps kind of complicated the story when it comes to the opportunity that might exist for crypto to be, um, a, a legitimate alternative to kind of the fiat system. Um, but I mean, again, it is in fact, early days, you know, the fiat system has been around for a very long time and it still produces pretty massive boom and bust at yeah. kind of regular um, intervals. Um, the fact that we've kind of seen that in the crypto space more recently um, and some pro rather prominent failures, um, it could perhaps um, spell doom and suggest that this can't possibly work. Um, it might also mean that, you know, you're cleaning out some of the wreckage and things will work better after this, that the institutions that come after the current wipeout um, will be institutions that are better built, that are better informed as a result. Um, but I mean, in some respects, that's going to depend on whether or not the, the regulatory <laughs> space actually allows for a lot of that better stuff to emerge. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of good points there. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. 
CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CASA. CASA makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, CASA provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. In the experience, it's weird being an old millennial. I don't know how old you are. I'm almost 37. So I'm, like, I'm a little, little above you. I've just turned 42. So I think I'm at the tail end of what is uh, a okay to describe as a millennial. Yeah, I think millennials stop at 40, maybe 39 or 40, but something like that. On this, I was thinking about this. I had a shower thought earlier that was, it's weird being on that cusp because yeah. I've got a lot of older people in my life mm-hmm. that don't know how to text. <laughs> and increasingly, I've got younger people in my life that don't know how to do phone calls. <laughs> I don't know how to communicate anymore. Um, yeah, but it's this. It is having an effect on us cognitively. I feel like this, like when I interact with, like my friend has a fifteen-year-old son, and the kid is just like brilliant, man. He like he grew up on the internet. He mm-hmm. is like the internet is 
he's internalized so much of yeah. the internet. It's incredible the way he can yeah. glide through and, uh, and his brain is reorganized in a way that mine mm -hmm. is not. And so this technology, I think, is having a real impact on our neuroplasticity or something. It, it, we're we're yeah. new people now as a result yeah. of the new tech paradigm. And I don't know. That's just that's it, how it really far is. That will go. It, it, it's kind of extraordinary. I mean, I was looking at something a little earlier today, um, just about like how as a species, like humans had for centuries lived life in precisely the same way, like kind mm -hmm. of generation after generation, like yeah. uh, kind of the, the impoverished, like yeah. kind of on the edge of starvation, largely mm -hmm. these kind of agricultural societies. In a couple of cases, you may be fortunate enough to live like in or near a city and fortunate or unfortunate. Um, but these were, these were difficult, difficult days. And then you have the sudden dramatic change that comes with the industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the first big, like, whoa. <laughs> and more recently in our lifetimes, we've experienced another profound shift where you take all of the gains from the industrial revolution and you add on top of that this incredible transformation of the the quote unquote you know knowledge um economy it being introduced and yeah. this new information ecosystem um emerging and we're still figuring out how to live in a world like this how to live in a world where twitter exists and it's interesting. Uh, there have been there are so many conversations these days, especially about um, Twitter, but about social media in general, and you know how it needs to be regulated, blah 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 blah. But there's a very real sense in which a lot of people imagine that we can kind of put the genie back in the bottle <laughs> and, and kind of recapture something of the way that things used to be. Um, but I think that that is completely misguided. Like yeah. we have to figure out how to live in a world where we have access to all of this information, where we can. Um, directly criticize politicians where, mm -hmm. you know, I could send a tweet and Joe Biden can send a tweet. Like that's just right. how it is. Right. And you're not, you're not going to be able to get away with, from that. You know, he may have more followers than I do, but if what I say resonates with enough people, mm -hmm. um, it'll be amplified above what he says. Yeah. Um, and that that's profound. That's huge. Yeah. No, I mean, it's completely this and you, you know, to the point, you were making there we did live on the edge of starvation basically across all of human history pre-industrial yeah. revolution you just look at that chart there's a book the rational optimist he shows the chart of gdp per capita and it's just mm -hmm. flat forever for like yeah. five thousand years until we get into the 1700s and then it just goes parabolic um so yeah we take i mean we take that for granted today that we really do live in the lap of luxury in a historical context and social media man it really is this kind of grand unconstrained social experiment like we we don't know what it's gonna do but i agree there ain't no stopping it you're, you're not gonna yeah. turn back time on that thing it's just the genie's out of the bottle but i think it's i don't know i tend to be a little more optimistic actually so i think the leveling of the playing field is a good thing the fact that yeah both I think that's you true. And I and Joe Biden can send tweets and, you know, helps us hopefully have more dialogue and, and truth discovery in the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I expect, you know, us getting to whatever the more stable quote unquote version of this looks like um, might, might be a little painful. And that may be mm -hmm. what we're experiencing at the moment um, while some of the old order falls away. 
Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely, I'm similarly optimistic. Um, if we can, if we can avoid the most serious pitfalls, yeah. um, and if we can um, insist on and convince enough people to insist on a lot of the kind of core, um, again, classical liberal um, values that have been so valuable, have been so critical to helping to establish a kind of prosperous system of private property yes. and individual liberty um, that has made all of this possible, um, then I think we'll be, we'll be okay. Um, I, I think one of the things that made me pretty concerned in recent months and years is the number of people who seem to be um, reaching a place where they just, they didn't believe that like free speech worked anymore. They didn't believe right. that the kind of classical liberal order made sense anymore. They would refer to people like me and you as like naive libertarians. Um, and um, I think some of that seems to be changing. Um, but either way, I, I do think that there is a really important social and political project that has to be undertaken. And it's actually articulating yeah. an affirmative vision for what the world ought to look like and can look like um, and the importance of preserving the values that we depend upon the importance of free expression the centrality of um of private property um and the importance of again like ordering and organizing a society around free individuals making decisions for themselves um, and their own families um, and allowing us the autonomy to be able yeah. to do that yeah yeah you know everyone mind their business and let humans self-organize that seems to be the best outcome it, it's hard though because we do and we've seen this before i think you could argue this happened with marxism where they properly identify the pro or a problem right there's a class getting rich and a class getting poorer but they misprescribe the solution, right? They say abolish private property rather than make private property stronger. Stronger private property is what's going to actually help people lift themselves out up the economic right. hierarchy, let's say. Yeah. And we, it's hard for libertarians, I guess, because a lot of people look out onto the world. We hear this term late stage capitalism. But you and I know, like if you've got a central bank in an economy, you're not, you're one half socialist. Yeah, <laughs> gate, right. You're not, you're not even close to free market. So it's institutionalized illiberalism. Like it's not, it's not, it's not based on private property. It's based on the violation mm -hmm. of private property. And on that notion of a level playing field, that's why I'm very bullish on Bitcoin, right? I think Bitcoin is, you know, Twitter levels the playing field in a lot of ways. Well, Bitcoin goes a really long distance to leveling the playing field in money, the most important market in the world. It's the, it's the strongest form of private property we've ever had. So all of those, these tools, I guess, um, will hopefully incentivize people to reassess the, the importance of those values that we have moved away from. Um, however, <laughs> we do have a lot of things to overcome still and i guess we could talk about one of the most recent catastrophes which was the ftx collapse mm -hmm. um and i know you, you you said earlier you're you've got more maybe questions and answers in the crypto universe and uh you know my short answer is 
that's why I just focus on Bitcoin. I think all the rest of it is noise, effectively. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin's the only thing that matters. Um, and this particular collapse is a great example of that, right? We, if you don't actually hold your own property and you take on counterparty risk and trust someone else, uh, you can get wiped out. And um, I would like to ask you about this weird media treatment that mm. Sam Bankman Freed has been receiving in the wake of this collapse. And I shared with you, shared this with you offline earlier, but I saw this meme of picture of Sam Bankman Freed says, you know, loses $30 billion of customer funds and goes on a, a public speaking tour or whatever he's doing right now. And then it showed a picture of Ross uh, Ulbricht mm -hmm. that set up Silk Road and it said created a website and he's doing two life sentences. And that just damn near boils my blood when I see that. Um, what, what in your opinion or estimation is behind this weird disparate treatment um, of Sam in the media? You know, I, I suspect there's a couple of different things going on here. I mean, one, I suspect that a lot of people in media just don't understand the space and that makes it a little harder for them to perhaps zero in on what exactly went wrong. Um, it certainly makes it hard for them to interrogate him. I mean, finance in and of itself can be a little convoluted and confusing mm -hmm. to people. Um, but but once you get into crypto, into the crypto space, it, none of it really makes sense to a lot of people. It's completely alien. And even during the run-up, um, as these companies were attracting massive investment and it seemed like everything might go to the moon. Um, like they didn't know how to separate the wheat from the chaff. They had no idea what was like kind of an obvious Ponzi or something you should at least be a little dubious about um, someplace where there was no value being created and someplace where there seems to be enormous value being created. Um, so I suspect that's part of it, just the mystery of the space. Yeah. Um, but in another sense, I mean, SPF is a guy who seems to have made a tremendous amount of effort or extend, expended a correct, tremendous amount of effort um, to try to cultivate a positive reputation, um, both with kind of policymakers who might eventually be regulating him or preventing him from moving into some of the other spaces he was trying to move into, um, or journalists who might be covering him. Um, he donated to the right people. He said the right things publicly. He drove that cheap beat up car. Mm -hmm. Like all of that seemed to be beneficial to him. Um, and now um, he's doing something very unusual. You know, someone who finds themselves in the crosshair like this and knows that there might be some criminal liability for them in the near future, usually you shut up. You don't say anything. Right. Um, your lawyers are doing the talking for you. You can't be found. And he leaning into this, answering the questions um, in a direct, if somewhat awkward way, um, and oftentimes in ways that are very self-serving um, and sound pretty dubious. I've seen him say a couple of times in recent days um, that he's surprised to see that uh, a lot of US um, uh, account holders haven't been made whole because to his knowledge, the money is there. There's just kind of a mistake was made. It, it seems like things could have maybe resolved themselves. I, I don't know that one can believe any of that. Um, he's even suggested that he, in addition to giving money to people on the left, was just giving dark money to conservatives. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any evidence to support this, but he's again, making these claims publicly. 
Um, so the fact that he's there kind of seeming confidently, if awkwardly, like doing this dance for the media, um, at least gives him an opportunity to potentially win some people over. Um, whereas otherwise all you would have is a tremendous amount of negative sentiment. Um, and I suspect, you know, because a lot of the people who lost their money, um, who lost their, their fortunes in some cases, lots and lots of money for individuals, um, are, you know, people you, you don't know, you know, they're online. They are perhaps kind of newly, newly well off, um, because of crypto, um, and perhaps just don't have the institutional firepower, the relationships to really get people to focus on their pain and suffering. And instead, all of it is focused on the, this unusual man um, at the center of everything. Um, it, it's, it's perhaps making him a little harder for some people to hate. Um, yeah. He is. I mean, well, I, I never paid attention to any of his interviews until after this whole debacle. Yeah. And the first interview I saw him on, I was like, how would you ever trust your, that guy with your money? <laughs> it seems pretty strange. But he does seem hard to hate, though, because he's very kind of nerdy, awkward, mm -hmm. puts on the good guy thing. So, yeah, I could see that. That makes sense. Um, what's going on with the New York Times stuff, though? Because this, they've been doing, and again, I don't follow this closely, so please correct me anywhere I'm wrong here, but. Well, I've heard they've been doing some puff pieces on him. I think you used the term thirsty applause earlier. Like, yes. <laughs> what's going on with this? Yeah, the, the, treatment the reported pieces, the reported pieces have been um, unusually free of some of the more pointed language that you would expect them to direct at someone like an Elon Musk. A lot of the kind of critical speculative coverage that you might expect to see. And it's hard to know why that's happening uh, apart from, this perhaps being someone that they didn't know they were supposed to hate um, and that, that helping to kind of soften the coverage. Um, but the most unusual thing is that he was at the deal book conference or not quote, not so much at it, but featured in the deal book conference that the New York times puts on where they bring in, you know, prominent CEOs and executives from across the tech and finance industries. Um, and they get to, to talk about whatever they're doing. And it's usually you know, these really interesting conversations um, that are supposed to be kind of no holds barred. And to have SBF featured in one of those conversations was surprising given what's swirling around him. Um, but again, I think that that particular exchange is, is really illustrates what I was pointing at before. I mean, one, that was probably one of the more severe interrogations he's undergone, but even there, you know, at the end of this conversation, the journalist who was interrogating him, I can't remember who it was, um, ends it by saying, um, well, thank you so much for talking to us. You know, it, it's it's good to have you like here kind of sharing your perspective on all of this. And you get this just kind of thunderous applause and people like nodding their heads affirmatively at this young man who, you know, is sitting there on stage having just lost billions of people's dollars other people's money um, in ways that definitely seem kind of nefarious, um, which at a minimum suggest unbelievable incompetence um, and at most suggest a really nefarious plot. Mm. I mean, it just, it isn't obvious that he, his company was doing anything of value whatsoever. Mm. Um, and in that respect, you know, it is barely better 
than a Madoff-esque Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Um, and it is astonishing that more people didn't see it. I suspect that part of what gives it cover is the fact that there were so many prominent investors like Sequoia and stuff yeah. who managed to give them their money. Um, I think BlackRock was invested as well. Um, like that's, you know, but, but I suspect what, what actually ends up happening in the venture space and I'm to the extent I've had exposure to it, it's as someone who's asked for money and received it in a couple of instances. Um, that the fact that certain people gave you money is oftentimes enough of an indication that this is worth doing, that other mm -hmm. people will give you their money too. 100%. And there seemed to be a lot of that going on um, with SBF, but also with a number of, of the other ventures that seem to be going out um, of business in this wave of failures. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a question for you uh, is, do you suspect that we're kind of through the worst of this or is there a lot more to come? I mean, because... FTX was what the number two um, company in this space, like kind of enormous. Like, do you suspect that Binance is kind of similarly exposed that we might see um, other kind of ripple effects or are we close to the bottom here? You know, I, if you'd asked me this, you know, nine, six, nine months ago with Celsius, uh, was kind of the first one to go. I think Celsius was the first collapse, then Terra Luna, um, Three Arrows Capital, and now FTX. Mm -hmm. but I thought it would just take, because typically these are like daisy-chained, uh, systemically connected lending relationships. Right. So it's like one right. borrows from another, they mark it up slightly, loan it to another. And Celsius is one that was like kind of at the bottom of that chain, right? They're taking in... Um, retail depositors and they're paying them yield but the yield is coming from their lending to other desk and whatnot so i thought just a few of the the celsiuses of the world would get wiped out i didn't know it mm -hmm. would go this fast this deep that it would cut this deep so to ask me now like if it's over i don't know i mean because it's opaque right you don't i don't know what's on binance's balance sheet right um i've seen him tweet statements saying they don't have any debt, no leverage, et cetera. But what is that? I mean, just trust in the guy's tweet. I have no idea. Right. Right. Um, but this is having been in uh, Bitcoin and the crypto universe for like six years now, this story is as old as time in Bitcoin world. I mean, every time there's a bear market, these custodians either, you know, the CEO dies, they get hacked, or there's some other uh, some other nefarious play going on, and it always comes at the expense of customers and depositors. So, in my mind, it's just another one of those. It's what did Charlie Munger say or Buffett? Uh, when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. Mm -hmm. So when you get into these bear markets, everyone that's over leveraged and overexposed just gets wiped out. I didn't think it would go this far this fast. So I'm already of a mind that, um, that we, it should be nearly over, but I have no idea to be honest. And that again, to avoid all of this, this is why Bitcoiners are always saying, not your keys, not your coin, no leverage, no shit coins. Like just avoid all that casino mess mm -hmm. and just hold Bitcoin in cold storage, no counterparty risk, and just keep buying it. Don't lever it. You know, don't encumber your assets. 
and that protects you from all of this nonsense. And um, it, I don't know, it's really crypto's bad, but when you understand mechanically how it works, it's like the same thing that we're doing in traditional finance, right? That the little Alameda FTX scheme where they were using mm -hmm. their their shit coin they generated out of thin air as collateral to then borrow against. Yeah. Well, that's what the U.S. Treasury and the Fed do. U.S. Treasury produces new <laughs> bonds. They sell them to the Fed that produces dollars out of thin air and then they inject it all into the economy. Like it's just, it's, it's made up. You ever seen that uh, game show? Whose line is it anyways? Yeah. Where the points are made up and they don't matter. Like that's what this game is. They it just, it's just funny money. So, um, I think ultimately it all gets liquidated and wiped out, including the Fed and the Treasury and all all the bullshit funny money games. But who knows how long it takes? Um, I would suspect in this cycle we've got to be near near the bottom. I guess the real bottom would be if Binance blew up too, or if uh, what is the Bitcoin uh, ETF? Well, Oh, it's escaping me right now. The Grayscale Trust, the Bitcoin mm -hmm. Trust. There were rumors of that one blowing up too. And that's just supposed to be a straight, um, it's just Bitcoin, right? People are buying equity in this trust and it's supposed to be one-to-one. -one. It just holds Bitcoin. And they're just holding Bitcoin. But there were rumors so that there might be some leverage and stuff going on inside of there. So I don't know. And I, what what is the value of a service like that? Is it just so that you don't have to do the storage on your own end on your end? So a lot of uh, large capital pools and endowments and things like this, they have mandates that they can't own Bitcoin directly or they can't own Bitcoin equities and things like okay. that. Okay, sure. They can go in and buy something like a GBT, GBTC, mm -hmm. which is just this. It's like an indirect exposure to Bitcoin. Trades right. at a premium or a discount, depending on the market cycle and all that. But um, a lot of people were just using it for that purpose. Um, and yeah, it, it, again, admittedly, I don't pay too close of attention to this at this point because I've seen this song and dance play out so yeah. many times. Yeah, yeah. I'm just kind of doing my own thing, you know, trying to run the show and learn more about Bitcoin and all the things that that are underneath it. So I hope it's the end but I, I have no idea. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how things shake out. I mean, it, it does seem to me that at this point, if you were to, if you were someone who got in, like even in April of 2020, like you're still, in the Bitcoin in particular, you're still not in a bad place. I expect April of 2020, you were looking at like, what, $6,000 uh, yeah. per Bitcoin. Bitcoin drew and, down to 3,800, I think, in March 2020. Is that right? Yeah, and that was the the COVID national emergency, which resulted in the fastest liquidity contraction in modern market history. It was faster than the Great Depression, mm -hmm. how quickly markets drew down. But then, obviously, yeah. a ton of liquidity was injected, so then it rebounded. Gosh, you um, forget that. It, there, so much happened so fast. And I mean, that was kind of terrifying at the time. It was impossible to know like how bad things would get. Yes. Um, but things rebounded like surprisingly quickly and seemed to be just fine. Everything was kind of buoyed by the fact that uh, a lot of the tech companies were doing particularly well at the time. Zoom was like the darling because everyone yes. was using it. 
Um, but yeah, things have changed again. Yeah. Well then the, also just the, the virus itself proving to just be kind of like a flu yeah. really, you know, like the actual, not to downplay which, which I suppose it, you can, yeah, you can, scary, you can say that but, safely now. <laughs> yeah. The mortality numbers are like, it's a, it's a flu basically. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's definitely been a weird couple of years. Okay. Yeah. Bitcoin draws down to 3,800 and then a year and a half later, it's trading at 70,000. I mean, that's, that's a massive, massive multiple. Um, you had asked earlier about this. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the protest in China. Yeah. And um, I think you'd ask about my opinion on how Bitcoin could just help with that. And, you know, I, first of all, I don't know what's going on in China. Like, it seems very difficult to get information it, out of there. It's, it's incredibly difficult to, to know what's going on on the street. And I mean, my, my, my assessment of things, um, you know, based on the best reporting I've seen and the accounts that I'm following that seem the most knowledgeable is that there's just a tremendous amount of popular frustration with the CCP mm-hmm. on account of their COVID zero policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the real question there becomes like, well, why is the CCP um, four years into this whole thing, essentially, um, like, uh, and not quite four years, what, like two, two odd years into this, almost three, um, insisting on a policy that is almost certainly doing them very little good in terms of keeping people healthy. Like, mm-hmm. do they have some ulterior motive? Are they trying to, to put systems in place to give them greater control over the population? Or is this just kind of bureaucratic intransigence? Like, this is just what we're doing. And it's what we said we would do. So we'll keep doing it kind of idiotically, whether or not it's of any benefit, because this is what we have, um, even if it means we destroy our economy in the process. Um, and in addition to that popular frustration, they had some recent tragedies. There was apparently a fire um, that has helped to kind of stoke some resentment. But the, the wave of protests all over the country does seem to be kind of pronounced and like very, very sizable um, and only seems to have an analog with kind of the Tiananmen period mm-hmm. uh, and the crackdown that has come um, hasn't been nearly as violent as um, Tiananmen eventually got. So one kind of worries about what might come afterwards. But what's interesting is that there's a bit of a power vacuum there. I mean, there's really only the CCP as a kind of political force in China. So it becomes this question of while well, people are in the streets demanding that Xi Jinping resign and mm-hmm. saying down with the CCP, it's not obvious what comes afterwards. Right. Um, and given that this is a very closed society, the question of what people can do for themselves to protect themselves, to protect their, their wealth um, to the extent they have any mm-hmm. um, in a circumstance like that becomes all important. Um, so I, I was curious to know, you know what your thoughts were about how Crypto can be beneficial to people who find themselves in these rather uncertain political times, you know, in China in particular, perhaps, but around the world, like this seems to be a a legitimate problem. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that individuals can obtain Bitcoin, uh, which I don't know how, I don't know how accessible it is inside of China. You know, I, I, I honestly don't know, but to the extent that you have access to it, you can at least then flee or you can flee without 
being impacted by capital controls, right? And this is one of the things we talk about a lot in Bitcoin is the magic of, again, holding your own keys. But if you, you can put your private keys on your brain and you can really cross a border with any amount of money literally on your mind hmm. and there's no search or seizure that's going to pry it out of you necessarily. You know, it's just, it's just an alphanumeric string or a sequence of words. And if you can hold on to that, then you, again, it doesn't have to be in your mind it could be in any information bearing medium, but it allows you to skirt capital controls. And um, that's a big difference from when Nazi Germany was cracking down on, you know, a lot of people, but the Jews in particular, they would have mm -hmm. to get very creative with how they would get wealth out of the country. Mm. Um, there was one story shared. I can't recall the name of the family, but he had his wife take the gold and silver that they had and fashion them into coat hangers. And then hmm. they basically were packing up to leave the country and they packed their wardrobe full of clothes hung on these hangers. And that's how they circumvented capital controls. So you obviously couldn't leave with bricks of gold. You had to get creative in this way. Sure. And I think if anything, Bitcoin just gives you, gives individuals a higher degree of creativity and how they get wealth out of a country. So, um, Definitely seems to be a net positive, but again, it, it comes down to, you know, who would be really good to talk to about this is uh, Alex Gladstein with the Human Rights Foundation. I don't know if you know who he is, but uh, he's a big Bitcoiner and he's very tuned in to all of these, these struggles, uh, humanitarian struggles inside of authoritarian regimes. Um, I wish I had a better answer for you other than it's definitely a very useful tool to the extent that you can get your hands on it. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 No, I mean, I think in a, in an unstable epoch when there is just a, a tremendous amount of uncertainty, um, especially when you're dealing with regimes that simply can't be trusted, um, that having options becomes vitally important. Um, and in a lot of instances, you know, moving, moving is something you'd like to be able to do, but being able to do that while keeping, you know, what, whatever resources you've been able to squirrel away intact, um, you know, it becomes all important. So, yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head because it's, I always say this, that in instances or circumstances of uncertainty, the best strategy is to maximize your optionality. You want as many options as possible because you don't know which way reality is going to move. It's uncertain. So you need as many options at your disposal as you could possibly have. That's what money is, right? That's another definition of money. It's, it's the ultimate instrument of optionality. It buys you any good or service in the marketplace. And Bitcoin's like the most superior form of money we've ever had. So it's it really is the ultimate tool of optionality, which lets you contend with uncertainty in the most effective way possible. And, and from your standpoint, I mean, obviously money with its primary function as a kind of medium of exchange and a store of value, is that, that, is that enough for Bitcoin to replace that function or do you need additional um, applications for Bitcoin, um, for it to really catch on and to become a, 
established, if it's not already, uh, but an established um, and meaningful part of the global economic system? You know, I think every money is definitely enough, right? If it was just gold 2.0, let's mm -hmm. gold to $10 trillion market, that would be pretty significant for Bitcoin. Um, but I don't think it will stop there. I th think there's going to be, there already are applications being built on it, you know, protocols being built above Bitcoin, like the Lightning Network, mm -hmm. um, that make it much more functional as a medium of exchange and that you can move it very quickly, very low fees, privately, et cetera. Um, all of those other applications and higher order protocols put additional demand on the base layer. So it's it's causing it to appreciate even more rapidly, basically, as, as those systems have more transaction volume, there's more demand for Bitcoin to fund the liquidity of those channels and whatnot. So I don't think it, it doesn't necessarily need other applications to succeed. I mean, I guess Lightning Network, you could say, is pretty necessary. You want a usable medium of exchange. Um, but in current conditions, it's so useful just to be able to put your wealth in something that's semi-untouchable, mm -hmm. right? And then you can vote with your feet. You can go wherever you're treated best and you don't have to leave with nothing. Like most refugees across history have just left with nothing, right? Whatever clothes and a bag of whatever they can carry and that's it. Um, this is something much more substantial, right? It's just a, just a piece of information that can contain really any amount of wealth you can put on it. So it's a yeah. really, really big. No, that's a radical, that's a radical way to, to, to state it. Yeah. 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 yeah a so, string, a string stored in your head that could be worth billions. A <laughs> like, on the brain walking across the border. It's yeah. never happened before. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but my heart goes out to the people in China. Cause I mean, man, it's been a long, they've been getting, getting a bad end of the stick or however you want to put it for a long, long time. And um, I also read recently that their population, you know, they're very top heavy, like most populations in the world. They've got a lot of uh, people going into the retirement age. They have a mm -hmm. very narrow uh, working or a narrowing working class demographic. Yeah. But theirs is exceptionally narrow because they have that one child policy for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So, and again, someone would have to check my math on this, but I'd heard that their population is supposed to have in the next 30 to 50 years. So they're like 1.4 billion today. They're supposed to go down to like 700 million. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure about the, the exact numbers. I do know that the birth rates there have plummeted pretty, pretty precipitously, even after um, the one child policy was lifted. Um, and you know, the lower birth rates are actually an issue all over the place, but it is a unique issue, um, yeah. in, in China, which, you know, that's imagine you enact a policy like that. Um, and you know, it causes a tremendous harm throughout the society, um, mm -hmm. and like damages and destroys families and is responsible for lots and lots of carnage, like actual, just human carnage, um, only to discover, <laughs> not so long afterwards that you actually don't have enough people. You were concerned that there were going to be yeah. too many. You don't have enough. Right. Um, you know, this is, this is the state in action. 
exactly <laughs> this is it every and Mises always repeat what Mises said he says all government action is a misallocation of capital because it's the revenues the state is generating are from theft so every time they steal from you there's some project going undone right there's some somewhere that capital mm. would have gone into some mm. network of consensual exchange to make other things happen that we never see we just see the state extracting the tax and then implementing self-destructive policies like this so again we're back to the my my full-fledged crypto anarchism here yeah i, I suspect my 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 own um philosophy at this point i'm definitely dispositionally an anarcho-capitalist i'm also very much a pragmatist in the sense that like i just i have to live here with yep. everyone else and i know that i am unlikely to convince most people uh that my perspective on these things is the right one and i also know that it's just hard to get from here to there mm -hmm. um and to unwind all that we've done, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, we, we have a central bank, you know, people often mm -hmm. talk about the United States is free market. I mean, our financial industry is among the most regulated industries in the country. Yeah. Um, got, you know, you talk about it, it, virtually any aspect of the financial industry, and it is heavily regulated mm -hmm. um, and influenced and controlled by government in some way, shape or form. You, you simply can't wave a wand and unravel that overnight without causing severe pain to a lot of people. Um, and, you know, given those facts um, and given the importance, I think, of peace and stability um, to a, a legitimately free society and the maintenance of a free society, because oftentimes that, uns that uncertainty, the instability actually produces a kind of uh, demand for things that lead to tyranny. People want yes, more government sure. under those kinds of circumstances. They, they, they begin to fear um, the possibility of having to be responsible for themselves. Um, so there's a very real sense in which like people actually have to be what the, that, that old adage, like when men are ready for it becomes yeah. like very, very important. So in a lot of respects, you know, I just have a, I have a deep appreciation for the kind of radical individualism that is kind of core to the American project yeah. and the degree to which the American political order um, has been one that has helped to foment greater freedom existing both, you know, here in the Western world, but around the world more broadly. Yeah. And it doesn't discount like the many profound failures along the way. Um, yeah. And some people might think slavery, but I mean, you can go beyond that. Like any of the foreign interventions that have caused so much like harm and carnage um, in other parts of the world, um, but, you know, if you take your time horizon and you think in a much broader way about human civilization, uh, about our species and its ability to thrive on the planet, you know, there's been a very short period in which people have been able to enjoy the fruits of freedom mm -hmm. and individual liberty. Uh, and I think that as a as rule in general throughout history, America's played a, a pretty valuable role and helping to kind of expand the horizon for more and more people. And I would hope that that would continue, um, but that it can only continue if people actually have an appreciation for what makes America like good um, and valuable, what makes it a force in the world and, you know, cheap, my country right or wrong, garbage patriotism won't get you there. 
um, and neither will the the newly popular like no one has ever been worse than America. America is yeah. fundamentally awful. It's built on slavery and racism right. and hatred and theft. Like that, that won't get you there either. But a, a real, thoughtful, um, and well-informed appreciation for the values that have helped to make this one of the most prosperous places on earth, and that have helped to make it a place where people can come from anywhere in the world um, and build a life for themselves. Um, is like vitally important. So I, you know, I hope we can keep. I hope we can keep our affirmative values at the forefront of our mind. I hope we can can yeah. talk about that stuff in a more forceful way, so that we can continue to per, persuade more people, remind them if they've forgotten, like what yeah. what matters, um, what's important, what's worth preserving, and why we're so fortunate to be alive right now, right here. Yeah, <laughs> beautifully said, man. Um... I think you're a natural Bitcoiner, honestly. Uh, have you guys talked <laughs> I, I, about uh, Bitcoin on Freethink yet? Um, on Freethink, yes, um, a fair amount actually. Um, and um, Freethink, we also operate the Big Think website, so we've we've certainly covered that in both places. Um, and I own a little bit of own a little bit of Bitcoin. Um, and and again, generally supportive um, of of the space and want it to be successful and hope that it thrives yeah. um, because we need alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking, I mean, you, the spirit of what you're saying, I think is it lives in the heart of every Bitcoiner basically that we, 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 I guess I'm speaking on our behalf. I believe in the foundational principles of the United States. I don't believe in the current, instantiation of the united states i think it's terrible right we're global imperialist we're things are coming coming apart right as they typically do at this stage and the life cycle of an empire but um there is great value i agree with you wholeheartedly great value to be had by focusing on the foundational principles um you know we Founding fathers, man, they wrote it all down, right? We had been through one of these experiments before. We saw it go up in flames and, um, well, not really go up in flames. I guess we had to fight to rip ourselves out of the last bad situation with the British Empire. And um, I guess we're just going through that cycle. What is it? The hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make soft men soft men make hard times you know that whole thing seems to be playing mm. out um, mm. but maybe we could dampen that cycle a little bit if people had recourse to a form of property that's impossible to inflate and hard to tax and hard to steal you know just help people just incentivize people to be more civil and peaceful and cooperative and mm -hmm. productive mm -hmm. and prosperous yeah so yeah, no, I, I concur. Camille, dude, it's been an awesome conversation. Um, I appreciate it, bro. Thank you for uh, for inviting me. And um, yeah, no, this has been this has been great. Yeah, man. Um, could you let my audience know where they can find out more about your work? Sure. Um, well, you can find me at freethink.com and bigthink.com, the two websites I'm responsible for. Um, the podcast, uh, you can find us at wethefifth.substack.com. We moved over there um, about a year ago and published the podcast there. 
Uh, so it's on all of the popular RSS services. Uh, so you can find us and listen to us on your favorite podcast player. Awesome, dude. Well, thanks so much, man. Uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Sounds good. All right, man.